The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes, and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from Wolfgang Munchau on the political situation in Germany, Andrew Watts on his year-long battle against a parking ticket, and Hannah Toombs on her love of Baileys. First up, Wolfgang Munchau. Sixteen years after Angela Merkel became Chancellor, Germany will have a new leader next week, Olaf Scholz. We might expect Scholz to enact a few domestic reforms, but do little to change the country's foreign policy, as is the tradition of a new German government. But this time, the consensus behind the country's foreign policy has broken down. Relations with Russia are at a delicate phase, and things might be about to change rather a lot. Scholz is from the center-left Social Democratic Party, and both of his coalition partners the Green and the Liberal FDP are pushing for reform. They disagree with him over the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline to Russia, which they think is symbolic of Germany's subservient relationship to Moscow. They abhor Angela Merkel's cozy relations with President Xi Jinping, nor are they too keen on the bad boy governments of Poland and Hungary, whom Merkel tried to protect from EU sanctions over their failure to adhere to European law. Germany's new coalition says it will not support countries that break the law. Look at the three-party manifestos and you will not find much overlap between these positions on foreign, economic and social policies. What defines their joint political project is the desire to modernize. Germany's industrial production is trapped in the analog era. Four out of ten companies still use fax machines. The new coalition will probably make some progress when it comes to pushing back German corporatism, reducing its over-reliance on fossil fuels and industrial exports. But doing so will mean changing foreign policy too, because German foreign policy has for so long been all about maximizing industrial exports. So out goes Heiko Maas, the foreign minister for the past three years, he is a social democrat, senior minister in two consecutive grand coalitions and a keen advocate of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. His successor will be Annalena Baerbock, co-leader of the Greens, who is a very different politician. She and her party are opposed to Nord Stream 2, which means the issue is only likely to become more contentious in the weeks to come. After five years and eight billion spent, the 760-mile pipeline is complete, but it has hit a last-minute legal hurdle from German regulators. Extraordinary amounts of money are riding on its completion, or suspension, and Moscow is likely to do everything in its power to complete the deal. The Social Democrats are perhaps Russia's most important strategic partner in Europe. Former Chancellor Gerhard Schröder is Vladimir Putin's chief international lobbyist chairman of the Nord Stream 2 company, which is fully owned by the Russian corporation Gazprom. Germany's president, 
Frank Walter Steinmeier used to be Schroeder's right-hand man during his years as Chancellor. Earlier this year, Steinmeier defended the pipeline on the grounds that Germany owed a historic, i.e. war, debt to Russia, atonement for what he calls times of terrible bloodshed. Through Gazprom, Putin created a public foundation in the social democrat-led state of Mecklenburg-Vorpommern in the northeast of Germany. Manuela Schwesig, the state premier and a former deputy party leader, is one of the pipeline's strongest defenders. Nord Stream 2 is very much a party project, and this is precisely the relationship being challenged by the Greens. Scholz himself does not seem to be part of Putin's circle. The Russians and Schroeder didn't bother with him because they thought he had no chance of winning. But the rest of his party has closer ties. The success of Scholz's coalition will depend to a large extent on whether he can distance himself from his party comrades and define a new relationship with Russia. It may be difficult to stop Nord Stream 2 at this stage, given that the remaining section of the pipeline was completed off the German coast three months ago, but the gas won't flow until there's regulatory approval from Germany and the EU. This might be a stumbling block. The Greens are betting on regulatory obstruction. Robert Habeck, the other leader of the Greens, will hold the powerful post of economics minister. He will oversee the regulatory approval process and it's unlikely he will push for a yes. The European Commission, for its part, is in no rush to grant approval. Under European law, pipelines have to be open to competition once they enter the territory of the EU. Gazprom argues that the law does not apply because Nord Stream 2 started before the law came into force. In this regulatory and legal dispute, it will make a difference whether the German economics minister lobbies on behalf of Russia or whether Habeck does the opposite. Then there's Beijing. Merkel was quite cozy with China. Under her chancellorship, Germany became the country's biggest trade partner in Europe. But the Greens were more critical of Xi's regime, so much so that some Green MEPs, like some British MPs, are currently subject to sanctions. For as long as that situation persists, it will be hard for Scholz to keep close relations. He may try to coordinate his China policy more closely with Washington. One of the few things we know about Scholz is that he is an Atlanticist. There are not that many left in German politics. When it comes to relations with NATO, Scholz will probably prevail over the Greens. They want to quit the US nuclear umbrella and ditch the NATO target that asks each member state to spend 2% of its economic output on defense. Scholz will not accept the former, but may compromise on the latter. Money is, after all, scarce. What about relations with Britain? Like most Germans, Scholz does not understand Brexit. Habeck, however, who's expanded economics ministry, will give him authority over climate and energy policy, is an Anglophile and was translator of English poetry before he became a politician. He will have a better understanding of the UK than the average German politician, and so will Christian Lindner, the chairman of the FDP and the incoming finance minister. Both men will become deputy chancellors, and the biggest potential for cooperation between the UK and Germany will come in their two respective portfolios of economics and finance. Germany's modernization project will require a huge amount of financial innovation that is unlikely to be provided for by the frusty German savings banks. Germany will need 
the deep capital markets of the City of London, especially venture capital. Green investment is not primarily a public sector project. There are more ways for Scholz's coalition to fail than to succeed. He won an improbable election victory and managed to form his coalition quickly, but is relatively untested and may yet falter. Germans seem to like him, but they don't really know him yet. There is reason to be cautious. When he was mayor of Hamburg, he failed to stand up to Warburg Bank when it ran a scheme, later declared fraudulent by Germany's Federal Court of Justice, that deprived the city's tax authorities of revenues. After Scholz became Merkel's finance minister in 2018, he had been told that not all was well with Wirecard, the now bankrupt financial services firm, but he did not act until it was too late. If he does not stand up to a local bank, can we really expect him to stand up to Putin if he threatens to cut off gas supplies? Nord Stream 2 may be an early test of his resolve. Another potential downfall of his coalition is money. How on earth will the government finance this great German modernization project? The Social Democrats want to increase social spending. The FDP, who support the free market, reject higher taxes and promise a speedy return to the rules that stop governments from issuing net debt. At the same time, the coalition wants to spend 50 billion euros a year to accelerate the transition to green energy and to modernize the outdated public infrastructure. Something will have to give. Merkel became reliant on Russia after she ordered Germany's exit from nuclear energy in 2011. She had no backup plan. The new coalition has one, renewable energy, but it is contingent on funding that has yet to be agreed. A third danger to Scholz's coalition would come if Merkel's CDU somehow recovers from its disastrous election results. Armin Laschet, the CDU chairman, is stepping down and his successor will be elected later this month. It is a race between three candidates who represent three different directions. Friedrich Merz, the National Conservative, Norbert Röttgen, the Atlanticist, and Helge Braun, Merkel's right-hand man who stands for continuity. The polls have Merz in front among CDU members. A revived CDU would mean that the Greens and the FDP could dump Scholz and switch coalitions at any time, during a government crisis, for example. So he will have to keep both of his coalition partners happy, which may mean risking a confrontation with his own party. In German politics, it is usually safe to bet that the status quo will continue. But in this case, I would not place such a bet. Either the coalition succeeds, which can only happen if Germany changes foreign policy, or it will fail. Whichever happens, we won't get more of the same. That was Wolfgang Munchau. Next up, it's Andrew Watts. My year-long battle with the parking profiteers. I had been cross enough about having to go to Senan Cove. Aside from the fact that I don't care for the place, and what is the point of a Cornish beach if the sand is too coarse-grained for sand castles, I resented the fact that I would not even be able to park near the place I hated. The car park on the beach is full from nine in the morning. I would have to drive up to the town, which is so far away that some of the houses aren't even second homes, and walk. Furiously, I bought a ticket, chucked it in the car, and marched down the cliff to the beach. When I returned to find a parking fine on the windscreen, I was, I admit, not in the holiday spirit. I assumed that sending a scan of the ticket to Armtrack, the parking company, would resolve matters. 
the ticket machine printed the last three letters of my registration number, so I could show it was the ticket I had bought, or that there was only a one in 13,824 chance that it was someone else's ticket, something like that. I went down a rabbit hole in the research on that one. There are 24 possibilities for each letter, I and Q not being used, so you'd expect the odds to be 24 cubed. But that is to forget about the combinations which the DVLA does not issue. Ass, sex and Jew are some, as are some that are unpronounceable profanities in Welsh, I could not find the full list, which would bring the odds down slightly. But that would assume the cars were randomly distributed between geographical areas. Not that it mattered. Armtrack replied it was irrelevant that I had bought a ticket, as I had a duty of care to display it. This is the part at which a barrister chum, to whom I related the story, started laughing. Tortious and contractual liability are two different things. Armtrack insisted that it's PCN. Parking companies always call them parking charge notices, or PCNs, so that you mistake them for penalty charge notices, or PCNs, which are issued by local authorities should be paid within 28 days, or it will be passed to its solicitors, BW Legal. My wife told me I should pay the £100 and forget about it. Instead, I spent a year fighting. BW Legal would send letters. I would send another photocopy of the ticket. It would argue, in broken English, that PCNs are legitimate business interests, and I would provide a link to the 2015 judgment it was misquoting. I spent an inordinate amount of time on online forums which give advice on defending claims. The posters there all knew BW Legal very well. And vice versa. BW Legal issued a press release condemning frequent forum users Coupon Mad, Bargepole and Lamilad by name, warning that they were legally unqualified representatives who relied on template pleadings which were of no assistance to the court. Mm. This was after a judge had decided that a case could not be struck out for abuse of process because there was no evidence that BW Legal knew it was inflated and unlawful. Quite the win for BW Legal. The forums did explain one thing which had confused me, why BW Legal pursued hopeless claims. The business model is that a parking company offers to enforce the parking rules for a landowner, often for free. It takes the reputational risk as well as the income from the PCNs. It then uses a volume processor, like BW Legal, which has, by some accounts, a million claims on the go at any one time, to pursue anyone who doesn't pay. And some do. The letters contain enough legal jargon to scare most people. And if they don't, the worst result is losing the court fees for issuing proceedings, which is cheaper, in the end, than having someone with a legal qualification deciding whether it's worth pursuing. You might think this was outsourcing the job of paralegal to Her Majesty's courts, but as we know, it's only abusive process if you know the claims inflated and unlawful. So I was pretty confident when I attended the hearing. Armtrack's solicitor, a Mr Lowey, uh, according to the county court judgment, although that must be a typographical error as there is no one on the role of solicitors with that name, cross-examined by reading out the car park's notice board very slowly. I humbly drew the court's attention to section 62.4 and schedule 2, of the Consumer Rights Act 2015. I won. That was Andrew Watts. And finally, Hannah Tomes. For many, the first Baileys of the year heralds the start of the festive season. But to others, it's a drink only to be consumed when temperature drops to single digits. A bottle lasts up to 24 months, opened or unopened, refrigerated or not, and it is an essential component of any worthwhile drinks cabinet. A few weeks ago, Morrison's announced a Christmas deal. 
Baileys at £10 a litre. To a Baileys fanatic like me, it was quite the call to action. I looked up my closest store, a 38-minute walk away. This seemed a stroke of luck considering the scarcity of Morrison's in London. Maybe it was a sign. Arriving at the supermarket, I made a beeline for the spirits section and bought two litres. That should see me through the month. There are a few drinks as versatile as Bailey's Irish Cream. A glug in a hot chocolate or a coffee gives either drink a kick. Mixed with Kahlua, it makes for a delightful baby Guinness shot. But a very generous pour served over ice to replace a pudding, or as a nightcap, gives you Bailey's at its purest. David Gluckman, one half of the pair of consultants for drinks company Diageo, who came up with the idea in the 1970s, claims that the initial thought behind Bailey's Irish Cream took about 30 seconds. Experimenting with his business partner, Hugh Seymour Davis, he wondered whether there was something in Ireland's rich dairy heritage that they could repurpose for a new drink. Hugh suggested a whiskey and cream blend, and the duo immediately headed off down Berwick Street in Soho to buy the ingredients. The first draft, Gluckman claimed, was intriguing, but bloody awful. Then they added sugar and chocolate powder, and a legend was born. The whole process took 45 minutes. In the 47 years that Bailey's has been available, new flavours have come and gone. Some were runaway successes. Mint and hazelnut were notable favourites of mine. Some, such as 2018's strawberries and cream offering, were aberrations to any purist. Bailey's has also spawned imitations. Lidl has its Irish cream liqueur, while Aldi uses a small seaside town in Northern Ireland, Ballycastle, in its branding to make the drink sound more authentic. But real fans know the difference. Bailey's is one of the first alcoholic drinks I learned to love, probably because of its close resemblance, both in flavour and appearance, to chocolate milk. It doesn't taste like a spirit, though it's 17%. So when, as teenagers, my friend and I snuck a bottle from her parents' drinks cabinet and got steadily, almost accidentally, drunk in her bedroom, we didn't expect the accompanying hangover. That was Hannah Tomes. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on our Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week.